Thanks for being here today. This is Finding Subjects. I'm Tony. And uh, today's story is, uh, is one that I've hardly told many people in my life. I don't know, I just kind of just don't talk about it, but I um, woke up thinking about my dad today, and I'll tell you this story. It's pretty interesting. So here we go. I woke up this morning thinking about my dad. Not that I rarely think of him. I think of him probably every day. He kind of just pops in my mind, and then the thought is gone. But this morning, I was thinking of him a little bit more than I typically do, and about a certain instance that happened a long time ago on a dam at a waterfall. People tell me I'm a lot like my dad. People see an old photo of him and they find the similarities uncanny, almost as if I'm a time traveler, that the photos are actually of me back in the 1940s and 50s when he was just a young man. But rest assured, I am not a time traveler, although that is right up there on my list of things I'd love to do. My dad was the second oldest of five children. His parents, my grandmother and grandfather, they were immigrants, which made my dad first generation American. It makes me a second generation American. My grandparents on my father's side are from Sicily, in particular Randazzo, Sicily, a town which sits at the northern foot of Mount Etna, which is the highest active volcano in Europe. So back to my dad, I wish I could tell you that we had an incredible relationship. I wish I could tell you I spent tons of time with him. I wish I could tell you that him and I were best friends. But in so many ways, I feel like I hardly knew the guy, and that kind of makes me sad, and that's probably what's bothering me this morning and why I'm thinking about him. My dad was one hardworking guy. Fact is, that is all he did as far as I remember. He simply didn't work his eight-hour shifts. He took any overtime he could get, often working double shifts, all to provide for my family. In our family, there were five kids in all. We always had food on the table, a roof on our heads, clothes on our backs, and Christmas. But as great as all of that seems, I didn't have him. And I kind of wish, you know, I had a better relationship with him. Occasionally, we'd have catches out back of the house. He'd come home from work and ask me if I wanted to have a catch. We'd grab the gloves and the ball and we used to toss it back and forth to each other. I remember something he used to say to me in a humorous way, as if he were an announcer or something, he'd say, Anthony, the All-American. And he'd say that over and over as we'd have a catch. And trust me when I tell you, I'm not even close to being an All-American athlete. It was true that technically speaking, I was an All-American. I was an All-American citizen, but that's about it. But I know he was just being a dad to me. And maybe there were hopeful dreams corruptly hidden within those words. I'm not sure. But this kid right here was as average as his average can be. I remember him throwing the ball and he'd be in his work clothes, his pencil holder in his pocket. And he wasn't a pencil pusher by any means. He was a coppersmith by trade, a brazier, doing pipe work of all kinds within the confines of ships. He was a hardworking man providing for his family and that is all he ever did. And if I'm being just straight up with you, I just wish I would have spent more time with him. I mean, I wish I knew him better, more than just a guy I had random catches with and more than him just being a disciplinarian. You see, my other siblings, they had themselves. They were sisters, four of them. And it wasn't long before I put myself out there on my own island. They had themselves. I had me. But I also had something else. One heck of an imagination. And it was there where I'd write and draw and listen to music. And I'd imagine I was somewhere else. Anywhere else but within the confines of my room. And when I was older, probably eight, nine, or somewhere around there, I'd go off on adventures. And I'd often go up to a few houses up, knocking on my neighbor's garage door, trying to gain entrance. You see, these guys, these brothers, they had something in that garage that I was very interested in motorcycles. They'd have people come into the garage and in there they would hang out, smoke cigarettes, give each other tattoos, work on their motorcycles, and sometimes they'd even have catches with me as well, which I thought was extremely cool. 
But I used to love it when they'd let me in. They'd call me Little Man. Little Man, come on in, man. Try to start the motorcycle, they'd say. I'd go right for the bike to the left in the garage. It's a big behemoth of a thing. An ancient Harley Davidson, probably 1940s era, I'm guessing. And they made a deal with me. If I could start that motorcycle, I could have the bike. So as you could see, I had serious motivation to get into that garage every single day. My father, on the other hand, he did not want me in the garage. He'd tell me, stay out of there. Not that he didn't like those guys. He just didn't want me in there for some reason. But in a way, I saw them as my friends. I'm like, kind of like big brothers. And I'd climb on board those bikes and try my hardest to start it. And it would never move. And I'd play around with the wires and nothing ever happened. But my imaginations were on a while with me ripping down a road somewhere. Wind in my face, the pipe sounding so loud. And those guys, man, they just used to sit there and laugh hysterically while they're watching me try and start that bike. And hindsight being 2020, well, I'd say it's a pretty safe guess that that bike was not in any kind of running order, <laughs> nor had it been for decades. I remember my father having a talk with the youngest brother. They were joking, and I remember the brother saying to my dad, but he's always here, man. He's knocking on the door all the time. We feel bad for the little guy. Something close to that. And then there was some sort of compromise reached, and I heard something said about that they wouldn't do anything around me or that I shouldn't see, and I really didn't understand it. But all I knew is I loved the motorcycle, and I really thought it was cool watching them do the tattoos. And yes, I wanted a tattoo of a skull and crossbones, but they wouldn't give it to me. <laughs> Maybe that was one way of my dad trying to let me do something I wanted to because he wasn't around that much. And not a chance that that last sentence is correct. I'm not sure, but I'd like to think that. But being that these guys were both members of notorious motorcycle gangs, I'm thinking he didn't want me there at all. Like he said, I don't want you there. That's the end of it. But I didn't listen to them. These guys were like my big brothers. And I remember in particular the youngest telling me if anybody ever gave me any problems, anybody in the neighborhood, I was to let them know right away and it would be taken care of immediately. I really didn't comprehend the magnitude of that statement until years later when, sadly, his older brother was killed and a funeral procession pulled into my grade school. And my parents wouldn't let me attend that funeral because I had school that day. But the hundreds of loud motorcycles that pulled into our school parking lot, which we share with the church, well, that was completely filled with bikes and bikers. And I stood up and I walked to the window and I stared down wondering how many of them I actually knew. Me, the 10-year-old, knew those guys. And it was right around then that the nun whose class I was in at that moment started freaking out on me and yelling at me and telling me, sit down. And I turned to her slowly and said in a calm voice, those are my friends down there. He was my friend. And I didn't move. And she threatened detention. And I didn't move. And she threatened to send me to the principal's office. And I didn't care. I stood there. And I saw the magnitude for the first time of all of them together. And it was then I realized, hey, if I had all them behind me, I could have ruled the neighborhood. And it was then I understood why my dad wouldn't want me going over there. He didn't want anything happening to me. But I'm certain nothing would have happened to me because they truly did have my back. And they'd always give me these baseball bats for some reason. And now that I look back, I'm thinking they might have been evidence. <laughs> I'm laughing about that. But up to recently, I had a couple of those bats. After those guys passed away, I had to find some kids my own age to hang around with. And uh, one was a new kid that just moved into the area, and I didn't really know him very much. But this kid says, hey, I want to go up to the falls and check out the falls. The particular day I'm thinking about wasn't long after a rainstorm. The falls was actually an old mill dam near my childhood home where the Muckinapetes Creek flows over and into the Darby Creek, which in turn empties into the Delaware River which eventually empties into the Atlantic Ocean. Muckinapanis is a word from the Lenape Indians which means deep running water. And it is said that the otter and turtle tribes of the Lenape Indians lived along the Muckinapanis roughly 200 yards from my home. The old mill was built in 1775 by a man named Thomas Shipley and at that mill they processed grain from farmers 
The mill was also owned at one time by John Morton, whose grandfather, Morton Mortensen, cast the deciding vote of the Declaration of Independence. And that is something that anyone growing up in our neighborhood kind of already knew, that there were very interesting events pre and post the Revolutionary War that happened in our area. So we went to the falls, and on that particular day, like I said, the water was gushing harder than normal because of the rain. And there we found an old rusty oil tank, the kind of people have in their basements, you know, filled with uh, heating oil, if you know what I'm talking about. It's got a flat top and a flat bottom, curved, uh, flat on two ends and then curved on the sides. And uh, this particular tank, it floated very well. And this tank sitting at the water's edge and it was perfect, like a setup, so perfect. And when we stood on that, I should have known better. But the second I stepped on that, that kid who I barely knew, well, he had an evil side within him. He placed his foot on that tank and pushed as hard as he could, launching that tank and me on top of it out into the middle of the creek. And I ended up right at the edge of the stone wall where the waterfalls go over, where the metal of the tank ground loudly against the stone. I could see over the edge where the water landed, the big jagged black rocks at the bottom, ten or feet so below. I was petrified. I called out to him to help me. This kid looked back at me and laughed. Then he picked up a stick and started pretend sword fighting with some kind of imaginary creature in his head, who knows, and he disappears around the bend and down the trail leaning out of the woods, never acknowledging my pleas for help. He just walks away, laughing. I was scared to death, thinking I was going over the edge at any second. I'd surely die from the rocks below, or I'd be sucked under from the current, or drowned, or the tank would capsize and hit me on the head and drown me underneath of it. I called out. I shouted as loud as I could, but nobody came. I could see that the cars were passing over the bridge not far away, but nobody was looking my way, and I was waving, and I could see the old mill house to the other side of the creek on my right, but it appeared nobody was home. I stayed there and dug my nails into the side of that metal tank and held myself there, laying low to distribute my balance, and I guess I remember from the coldness, the wetness of that metal pressing against my face as I froze from fear, and the water periodically came over the tank and soaked me from head to toe. My hands pressed so hard against the rust of that steel, and I willed myself and my hands to suction themselves to secure this rolling, this bobbing, floating death trap, and suddenly I remember thinking about my parents and how I didn't tell them nor anyone where I'd gone. And the fear shot through me like a cold chill, and I realized I was indeed on my own. Just me, and God possibly. And that somehow I needed to get closer to the shore so I could either swim off or pull myself off. And if things weren't getting bad enough, the sun began to set. It was getting dark. It always gets dark in the woods sooner than it does anywhere outside of them. I prayed, man did I pray, for help to get out of there somehow. I was there for what seemed like hours to me, which I am certain I was. And suddenly I heard him calling my name, Anthony, Anthony. And I shouted back and how he found me, I have no idea in this world. It wasn't like I went to this place often at all. I mean, it was a freak that I was even there. But there he was coming off the trail and back to the bank, my father of all people, to save me. I'm not certain of his first words. I'm pretty sure they included some colorful language, some French maybe. But I do remember when he calmed down and started searching for a long branch or something he could reach out to me, and he did find that branch, and after several failed attempts, the branch slammed down on the metal tank and made a loud clanging noise, and I grabbed it. I went to my knees, and I held on for dear life as I tried to balance myself. As my father pulls me closer to him, I reached the shore, and my dad reached out his arms and grabbed mine, helping me to the ground where he looked at me and yelled, and then his voice changed, and he saw how scared I was. I remember him grilling me about the kid that caused the incident. And I told him he was a new kid in the neighborhood and I really didn't know him. And my father reminded me of hanging out with people I didn't know. And I am certain he threw in there other cautionary statements about water safety, garages with bikers. But out of all of that, out of that entire fiasco, 
I remember how I felt, how safe I felt, and how happy I was that he found me, my dad, and how unbelievable it was that he showed up out of anybody. It was him. And out of so many places I could have been, he chose the most unlikely and possibly saved my life. He had a tough life himself, a real tough life. But he always provided for us, and as much as I didn't see him, that's what I find so astonishing, that he found me there when I needed him most. As a child, my dad was forced to leave school at the sixth grade. He was told he needed to work to help my grandfather support the family since he was the oldest son. My grandfather used to use a patch of land somewhere in the area where they built the old veteran stadium in Philadelphia, and he grew vegetables. And as a young kid, my father took those vegetables into Philly and sold them. It was a tough life to be forced into at such a young age, and it makes me wonder about events that transpire and if luck, coincidence, happenstance, prayers, you know what I mean, all of those things actually have anything to do about how things work out. Out of anybody who could have been there looking for me, he'd have been the most likely not to be there, not because he didn't love me, but because of his commitment to work and to us. I miss him every day, even though we didn't have that close relationship I always wished for. I learned a lot just from how he lived his life. He was a generous, giving man, always expecting nothing in return. He did things for people on his time off, the old people from the neighborhood where he grew up down in South Philly. Plumbing task, a repair task, the old people down there couldn't do themselves or couldn't afford to get done. I was proud of him for that. I was proud of him for working in the crappy conditions he worked in all of his life to provide for us. That was sacrifice is what it was. That was love. Yeah, we weren't close but I learned from him just by observing. I learned how to be a good dad, even a better dad, because he always said you should strive to be better than we were to you. I think I ended up as a good dad. In fact, I'm pretty certain I did. I remember many years into the future after my dad had his heart surgery, I came over to visit him and afterwards I stood there and I started to leave and I said, dad, love you, man. And he said, okay, love you. And that was the first time that I can remember of ever hearing that. And everything else went away, all of those times that he wasn't there. You see, his father from Sicily, I don't think he ever said that to my dad. And my dad, maybe he just didn't know how to say it or didn't feel comfortable, I don't know. But we said it more throughout the rest of his life, and I guess that's all that matters now. He was there for me when I needed him, when no one else was there in the dark, on the water. When I needed to be rescued, he came out of the darkness, and somehow he found me got me to safety, and I remember he placed his arm on the top of my shoulder as we walked out of the woods, and maybe, quite possibly, that was his way of saying, I love you, son. And at least that's how I see it. And an interesting side note about my father, he was actually a true hero. He was uh, acknowledged in our community for saving the life of a woman who was being electrocuted while she was filling her pool. The hose dropped down and the cord uh, was right there and she was standing right next to that and was electrocuting her. My father uh, came over and knocked her out of the way and then gave her CPR and uh, brought her back to life. So he is a true hero in more ways than one. Miss you, Dad. And thank you for everything. And because of you, I am the man I am today. Love you. I'm Tony, and this is Finding Subjects. Thanks for being here, and thanks for listening. And if you like it, please share this message with others. Uh, please subscribe, and uh, we'll catch you next time. Have a great day.